0: Morning. If you've never read through the first seven chapters of the book of Romans, I would encourage you to do that. Seven chapters of Romans will lead you to the verse in chapter 8, verse 1, that says that there is no condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh. But after the spirit. No condemnation. No being condemned. No being judged to hell. And that's an awesome thought. If you know Jesus Christ. As your Lord and Savior. This morning. You do not stand under any. Condemnation. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and so that's my prayer: is that we all this morning know Him as Lord and Savior. And if you don't, this is the day. And so, with that, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter twenty. And we're going to be looking at verses seven to fifteen the remainder of this chapter I titled the message this morning Satan's rebellion crushed and the final judgment two parts really to this message remember as i've shared already that we are getting the highlights as we read through the book of revelation we're not getting every detail that is known to god but we are getting the highlights the important things that we need to know as christians but what we see in this chapter and we talked about it last week is we see this thousand year millennial reign of christ that i believe is a literal reign of christ where we're going to reign with him for a thousand years that's going to follow the seven-year tribulation period. but we now this morning are going to look at this next section, verses seven to 10, that's going to talk about Satan's rebellion being crushed. So let's, let's look at our Bibles, uh, starting, and uh, we're going to read it, starting in verse one, to keep the context here. But look at your Bibles, Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. Then John saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. The angel, we're told, laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. I don't think there's any question about who we're talking about here that's going to be bound. It's going to be Satan himself. And we're told in verse 3 that the angel cast Satan into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him so that Satan should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Sounds very literal to me. But after these things were told, Satan must be released for a little while. And then John says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them, which I believe is the church age saints. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus. And for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This next group, I believe, is the tribulation saints, those that will give their life for Jesus Christ, but they will be saved, excuse me, during the tribulation period. But then we have another group. Look at your Bibles, verse 5. But the rest of the dead, and I believe this is the unbelievers, they did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And really what we see in these first three verses is that John sees this angel who was given authority from God to come down from heaven to earth with a key that had been given to him and he had this great chain in his hand. The key is for opening The bottomless pit the chain is for the binding of Satan and the place that he will be cast into is the bottomless pit or the abyss actually verse 7 calls it his prison you see Satan will be in this place I believe for a literal thousand years We're going to be reigning with Christ during that time. It's going to be, though, only a temporary imprisonment before he reaches his final abode. Do you know how many abodes that Satan has dwelt in? Well, one, and the first one really started in heaven, didn't it? But then Satan wanted to be like the Most High God, and we know that Satan was cast out of heaven, according to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 to 15. And then we see him in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, at the fall of man, where he tempted Eve and Adam in the garden. His second abode, here on earth, in the garden. That third abode, that we read about in Ephesians, where... Uh, chapter 2 in Ephesians 6 where he is uh, uh, the the God that is in the atmospheric heavens we might say. He's above this earth. He has access to roam around the earth, to be in this abode or this place even above the earth. And then the fourth place that Satan will dwell is when he's Cast down to earth. Remember we read out of Revelation chapter 12. Verses 7 to 12. About Satan being cast down to earth. Never to be able to return. uh, To that place in the heavens again. His fifth abode. Is going to be the bottomless pit. That we're reading about in our chapter this morning. The abyss. Where he's going to be locked up for this thousand year period. And then his final state, his final abode, will be the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And so that right there is the life of Satan. But he's going to be released from that prison to go out to deceive the nations once again. Know this, church. Your enemy, your arch enemy, your adversary, the devil, does not give up. He will not give up on doing everything that he can to distract you as a Christian even or to destroy lives. That's his purpose. He's the destroyer. He is the deceiver. And we as Christians need to be aware of that. We're living in a world right now where Satan is the god of this world, all the demonic things that we see going on in our world today, there should be no question mark on our heads of where that's coming from. We already read in chapter 19, verse 20, that the beast and the false prophet, the beast being the Antichrist and his false prophet, are also going to be cast into the lake of fire, Burning with brimstone, which will be the final place also for Satan. In verse 2, the angel of God, we're told, lays, lays hold of Satan, puts him into this bottomless pit, shuts him up and seals him, and he's kept there for this thousand years where he's unable to deceive the nations for this period of time. And so it appears to me that the binding of Satan is a necessary preparation for the millennial kingdom that's to come. And when we read when the thousand years were expired, when they're finished, that the angel is once again given authority to release Satan from his prison, the first thing he does is he goes out again and attempts to deceive the nations once again. But his freedom, his deception, is going to be short-lived. Some have asked why. Why would God do it this way? What are the purposes Of this millennial kingdom and the locking up of Satan for that thousand years. But have you ever noticed in your own personal life that God's ways are not always your ways? The ways that God does things, quite often there are people that question that. And even Christians wondering, why would God do this this way? I would have done it so much differently. But know this, there is nothing that God does that He doesn't have a specific purpose for it. He's not just randomly doing things. He has a specific reason and purpose that will ultimately bring glory to Him when He does these things. God's purpose, as I shared last week, for this millennial kingdom, this reign of Christ, I could say is really threefold. It's to fulfill biblical prophecy. And we are going to see that come to pass. It's also to fulfill the covenants and the promises that God made with the nation of Israel. Very important for us to remember. And thirdly, it's going to restore God's throne and bring in his righteous judgment in that kingdom for that thousand years. God's going to bring everything full circle. What he had given over to the God of this world, Satan, God is going to redeem that, take it back and sit on the throne of David, and we're going to reign with him for that thousand years. So who's going to be in the future millennial kingdom? We know the church age age saints, that's you and I, are going to be there. Some are going to be raptured. And some that have died and fallen asleep in Christ are going to be raised up to meet the Lord in the air. Are you ready, church? Are you ready for that day? It's coming. The tribulation martyrs that we read about, the tribulation saints, we can call them, those that get saved during the tribulation period, will be raised up at the end of the tribulation period, as well, I believe, as the Old Testament saints. They're also going to be raised up at the end of the tribulation period. There will also be those who come to Christ during the tribulation period that will survive. Not everyone is going to die during the tribulation period. There will be some that will survive all the plagues and judgments upon this earth. They also will go into the millennial kingdom. But they will be ones that have given their life to Christ. This will finish what we call the first resurrection. All of these being under the first resurrection. All of them reigning with Christ for the thousand years. I didn't share this last week for time, but I want to share with you really some characteristics of this millennial kingdom under the question of why. Why is God doing this and what is it for? Let me give you a list. I'm going to read it through fairly quickly. Satan will be bound during this time. The Antichrist and the false prophet have already been cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 19. Christ will sit on the throne of David, ruling this earth, once again fulfilling the Davidic covenant that he made with King David, 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 to 16. Then we have the Abrahamic covenant will be filled where all the land that God had promised to Israel will be theirs and Israel will be regathered back into their land. It's also going to be a time of the regeneration of Israel and the new covenant that God promised He will fulfill. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 and 34. Peace and justice during this time will prevail. It's not going to be perfect restoration during the millennial reign but it's going to be a time where peace and justice under the rule of of jesus christ is going to be once again established we're going to look ahead even further revelation 21 next week where we're going to see the new heaven and the new earth where everything will be perfection in that time israel will become the center Of Gentiles attention. During the millennial reign. Isaiah 14 and Isaiah 49. Righteousness. Holiness. Peace. Security. Joy and gladness. Will be the primary characteristics. Of this kingdom age. Isaiah 32. And Isaiah 51. There will be a new millennial temple. That will replace the tribulation temple. Where sacrifices will be made in remembrance, Ezekiel 37 and Ezekiel 44 and 46. There's going to be a millennial river that will flow, according to Ezekiel 47, uh, that will flow from the temple south to the Dead Sea. There's going to be this millennial Israel where the tribes of Israel will be divided and established in the land as God had promised. The millennial Jerusalem, this city will be called the city of God, Ezekiel 48. The 12 apostles that we see in the, in the New Testament will have authority over the 12 tribes of Israel, Matthew 19, 28. Israel will be over the Gentiles during this time. The time of the Gentiles has ended. The church age saints the tribulation saints will rule and co-reign with Christ over all the gentile nations of the world. There will still be birth and there will still be death during this thousand-year period. Isaiah 65:20. And then some aspects of the curse that were put upon mankind and upon this earth are going to be removed. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 to 9. The earth will become fruitful. Christ will rule over his kingdom, but we will also rule with him. I know that's a mouthful. I know it's a lot. But I wanted to read to you, here's some, and there's actually more than that. Like I shared last week, much is said in your Bible concerning the millennial reign of Christ and this kingdom to come. Here on earth. now look at your Bibles at verse seven. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison or his confinement and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog which is a, a title like of a ruler, and Magog which, speaks of the land, to gather them together to battle whose number we're told is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. We're just getting a little bit. We're getting a little taste of what's to come. Satan will once again, we're told, go out. Which indicates that these thousand years that he's in prison, Satan's going to be unable to deceive the nations, to to be that deceptor that he's always been until he's released. We're told that after his release, He'll go to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth. That's like looking at the compass: the north, the south, the east, and the west. In other words, from the entire world, the nations that encompass this earth. They're going to, he's going to go out to deceive the nations in the four corners. He's going to gather a vast army uh, once again, whose number, we're told, is as a, as the sand of the sea. And he's going to seek to gather these nations to once again battle against Israel and God. He's relentless. He's he's a deceiver, but he is relentless in his pursuit, though he knows that his time is short. He knows that it's going to come to an end. This reference of Gog and Magog that we read about in this chapter, some have thought that it's the same Gog and Magog that we read about in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I'm of the mindset, and there are others that also, that see this as a different time. And here's the reasons why I see it different from the war, we might call it, or the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39, which I believe happens at the beginning of the tribulation period or right before the tribulation period or right before the rapture of the church. We may see it, but it could be right after the rapture of the church. But we do see this: these differences. The Ezekiel War, it takes place before the millennial kingdom is established, Ezekiel 38 and 39. The Ezekiel armies were told... In Ezekiel, they come from the north of Israel upon Israel. Here they're coming from the four corners of the earth. And the final rebellion of Gog and Magog in Revelation 20 appears to be chronological uh, before the ushering in of the new heaven and the new earth that we're going to read about in Revelation 21. And so, I see it as different. Some have said this Gog and Magog is a way of saying that it's once again going to be the enemies of Israel, Israel, these nations that are going to come down once again, basically to try and do a replay of what they already tried to do. In verse 9, we're told, they, speaking of these nations, they went up on the breadth of the earth and they surrounded, we're told, The camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now, the camp of the saints, I believe, is God's people, Israel. And the beloved city that we see here is the city of Jerusalem that God loves. It's something that all the way through scripture, it's made known. The love that God has for his people and for his holy city, Jerusalem. We read in in Psalm 87, verse 2 and 3, the Lord loves the gates of Zion, another name for Jerusalem, more than all the dwellings of Jacob, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. And so this is God's heart towards his people and towards his city, his holy city, which is the city of God. And so let me just give you a summary here of the events. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, all of the unsaved people on the earth are going to be destroyed at the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's going to leave only the faithful, those that have been saved during the tribulation, who are going to enter into the millennial kingdom of Christ. That's one point. All who get saved and survive the seven year, they're going to go into the millennial kingdom where they will have children who will have to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, How long is a thousand years to you? It's a long time. How many children can you have in a thousand years? How much will the population grow during that time? It'll be their children that'll have to make a decision for Christ. Sounds like we're starting all over again, doesn't it? But you see, God is going to show that even through this millennial kingdom where he is sitting on the throne of David, righteously judging and administering this earth, that people will, in their heart and in their free will, they will still make a decision to rebel against God. It's amazing to me. I can't even wrap my head around it. But it's what we see is going to come to pass. This passage that we read here, it, it shows us the very nature of man. I, I think we see that very clearly, don't we? We've seen it in our own life, we see it in our world. The nature of man is evil. Left to himself apart from Christ, it's evil. The rebellious spirit of man who will be desperate in this day to fight against God. That is hard to even imagine. The very nature of man, according to Romans 5.10, is that he is an enemy of God. Did you know that? In our very nature, we're enemies of God. And he's an enmity against God. Romans 8, 7. And we're told in verse 8 that this number of people who rebel are going to be as the sands of the sea. A lot. It's going to be a lot. We're also told that God's enemies will come to a final judgment in this day. This is going to be another direct judgment from God against those who come together again to come against his people in his holy city we're told in verse 9 look at your bibles that fire comes down from god out of heaven and devours them when you read your bible about the uh, sodom and gomorrah And God bringing judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. When you read that, do you read that in a literal way that God had fire come down from heaven and consume Sodom and Gomorrah? He's going to do it again. He's going to do it in this day. And then in verse 10, we're told the devil's ultimate end. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone... Where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Where's the clap? We should all be clapping? It's real. It's coming. He's going to be cast into the lake of fire. Your deceiver. The one that led you around by the nose for a long time before you knew Christ. The one who tempts you every single day. is going to be cast into the lake of fire. Now verses 11 to 15. The final judgment that will follow the thousand year millennial reign of Christ. This is one of those portions of Revelation that's hard. It's hard in light of the fact that we know people in our life that we love that don't know Christ. There's coming a day, a judgment day. And there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but there is condemnation to those who don't know Christ. We're warned in Scripture that a time is coming that every person who has rejected Christ is going to enter the courtroom of God it's here that they're going to be judged for their rejection of Jesus Christ and for the evil works which they've done we all probably listened in or watched The O.J. Simpson trial, didn't we? The courtroom scene that we saw on the TV as O.J. Simpson stood trial for murder. It was actually called the trial of the century. It cost taxpayers an estimated $9 million, and it lasted for nine months. The McMartin Preschool abuse trial, one of the longest trials on record, lasted for seven years and cost $15 million to bring it to an end. The courtroom in this day is not going to have any defense lawyers. It's not going to be a time for people to plead their case before God. Or a time for people to repent and be saved during this time. There will be no gathering of evidence by lawyers. And there's not going to be any retrials. This is the last judgment. A day that Jesus himself warned would come. And let me ask you, when was the last time that you heard a message on hell? When is the last time you sought to tune in to a message on hell? I think we're living in days right now that there's a lot of the church that is pretty naive to the coming judgments, and what that means for those who don't know Christ. Because little is being said, less and less being said about hell and what the destiny will be for those who reject Christ. Here's just a few of the warnings. There's many in the New Testament. These are all red letters. This is all Jesus speaking. Matthew 7.13 says enter, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there, were, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few that find it. Matthew 10.28 And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In Mark 9.43, we read, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter in life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's Jesus' words, not mine. Jesus speaking of this day, and I believe that Jesus speaks much about hell. He speaks more about hell than He does if even that eternal heaven and and what that's going to be like. Much is said by the Lord and throughout the New Testament about hell and even the old. But I believe that the reason he spoke much about it is because we have a compassionate, loving, heavenly Father that doesn't want anyone to go to hell. That's our God. That's the love of Christ. And so he warned much about this day. This day that we call the Day of Judgment. It's going to be a sobering day for many. You see, many are going to stand in that courtroom on this day of judgment. There's many of them that are going to be standing there on that day that thought they would never be there. That they would never be in this time of judgment. Multitudes... religious people, Buddhists, Muslims and Hindus and Protestants, Catholics, priests, vicars and pastors, deacons, nuns, missionaries, church attenders, moral people, volunteer workers, will all be standing At the judgment seat of Christ. People that didn't think they would be there. People that thought they were all right. People that thought they were doing the work of God. Listen to the warning of Jesus in Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." I never knew you. He didn't say, I once knew you and you fell away from me. He says, I never knew you. You thought you were, but you weren't. You see, no one on this day is going to be able to fool God. Nobody's going to just run Him around and, and pull something over on Him. God sees it all. He sees every heart that will be standing before him. In the Bible, we find five places that sin was judged or will be judged. Sin was judged at the cross, wasn't it? Christ bore the judgment for our sin at the cross. It was due to you and I, yet he bore our sin. In 1 John 4, 17, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. That's an encouragement for us Christians. After the rapture, when believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ, This judgment seat is different than what we're reading in chapter 20. This is the Bema Seat. That's the Greek word. Even Christians will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But it will be a different judgment seat. It's where we're going to be judged for our works. But we're also going to be rewarded for the good things. The things out of the right motive and heart that we've done for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. During, the third one is during the tribulation period where Jews and Gentiles will be under divine judgment by the hand of God. We've been through all of those three sets of judgments. God's judgment against a Christ-rejecting world and the sin that is in this world. Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. It's going to be intense, a time of God's judgment. The fourth is going to be after the tribulation period where the Gentile nations are going to stand in judgment before God. And we read in Matthew chapter 25 verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all of the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd his sheep from the goats. It's going to be the judgment of the nations. Matthew chapter 25. And then lastly, the millennium unbelievers. The millennium unbelievers will stand before the great white throne judgment. And that's the text that we're going to read now. Look at your Bibles. Revelation 20 verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, and from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. Hard words, but true. And the first thing that John sees in this vision that he's seen is a great white throne. He doesn't say who's on the throne, but we read the words of Jesus in John 5.22 that I believe gives us the answer. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, Even so the Son gives life to whom he wills. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. I believe that Jesus Christ is going to be sitting on that throne, that great white throne, as the judge of mankind. John also calls it great, possibly because of the one who's sitting on the throne. The, the, the throne is great maybe because it's the magnitude of the judgments that are about to come upon those that have rejected Christ. He describes it as a white throne which may speak of the holiness and the purity that comes from that throne as he makes judgment. In Psalm eighty nine fourteen, we read righteousness and justice are the foundation Of your throne. And it's because. God is righteous. And holy and just. That God must judge sin. And he will. What an awesome day. This is going to be. For John says. From whose face. The earth and the heaven. Fled away. And there was found no place for them. I mean, can you imagine the day that those that have rejected Christ will stand face to face with him? Now look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things written in the books. No one is going to escape this day. John says, I saw the dead small and great. You see, it doesn't matter if a person is rich or poor. It doesn't matter what status they hold in this life if they're a lower class or of a high class, rich or famous, it doesn't matter. All of those things will be broken down in that day. And no one without Christ will escape. He also says, I saw them standing before God, which even in our courtrooms today, It's the position that someone takes when he's about to be sentenced. But the question is not going to be asked in that day. How good of a person were you? How many works did you do? How many times did you go to church? And weren't you baptized? And did you seek to do good unto others? He's not going to ask that question because you see, God already knows the answer to those questions. Though there will be people pleading, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Yet he knows their heart. They're standing before God who is able to see everything. We're told that the books, and that books there is plural, were opened. And then it says, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, singular. This book, called the book of life, is the one that's of most importance. Because it records the names of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. This book is what determines if a person will spend Eternity with Christ or without Christ? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? That's a big question. And if it is, how is it and why was it written in that book? We're told, and the dead, the dead are the unbelievers. They were judged according to their works By the things that were written in the books, plural. These books, we might say, are a record. They're a record of the deeds that were committed prior to death. You see, God does keep records. God does keep records. And God will judge man according to his works. Revelation 22.12 And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. You can also read in Revelation 2.23 Revelation 18.3-6 God keeps a record and God will judge man's works. This book of deeds that we see here is not for the purpose of determining if you've done enough bad things to warrant hell. That's not the purpose of the book, to determine how big the list is or how many gross sins were in that book that will determine if that person goes to hell or not. It's a record of the deeds that God will use To warrant the punishment. The punishment that's going to be rendered to them in that day. You see, God hates sin. Do you know that? God hates sin. And He hates even the sin and compromise in our own lives. God hates sin. And God will punish sin. But know this. This. That on the day of judgment, God is going to be a righteous judge in all of his judgments. There will not be one foot that will step into hell that didn't belong there. God won't make a, a misjudgment. He won't judge unrighteously or unjustly. Those that end up in hell are those that have completely said no to the truths of the gospel. Have rejected Christ, that's what will be uh, their end. But look what it says in verse 13: the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each according to his works. You see, some people I think they think if they're buried at sea or if or if they're cremated, that somehow or another God's not going to be able to put all that back together. But you see, God's going to be able to gather all those that have died in the deep. He's going to be able to gather together all those that have been cremated cremated, uh, in this life. God is going to bring them all together for that purpose that they will stand before him. But just think of the millions and millions of people that perished in the flood. I tried to, you know, you can't go on and say how many people have been birthed into this world since the beginning of time. I saw one that somebody tried to put on there. It was like 121 billion. Don't ask me how they come up with this. But, but just think of the lives that have been birthed into this world through all of the centuries. And even those that are in the sea. And wherever they're at, they're going to be brought together this day of judgment Jesus said in in John 5 28 he says do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation There's only one and two places. The first resurrection or the second resurrection. And if you're in the first, you know the Lord. If you're in the second resurrection, you're an unbeliever. Then death, verse 14, and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. And look what it says. This is the second death. Death here, I believe, represents the bodies of the dead. And Hades is the place of torment for those unsaved souls. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. These are the final enemies that will be destroyed by God when they're cast into the lake of fire. You see, God's bringing this all to an end. He's going to bring it all to an end. And we're going to go into eternity in glory with Christ. That's our destiny. It's where we're going to be. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It will be in this day that a promise of God will be fulfilled. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. It says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. He's going to bring it all to an end. Amen? John writes, This is... The second death. The lake of fire. Jesus warned in Revelation 2.11 the, in the letter to the church at Smyrna. He says this in his warning to them. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by what? The second death. You won't be hurt by the second death. Verse 15, we close, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Raise your hand if you know that your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. Raise your hand. I think I saw all the hands raised. But if not, come and see me. Because if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, then you stand in a very precarious way right now. You are standing in a place right now that I wouldn't want to be. Because when the Lord comes back, that's it. There's no second chances. When you enter the courtroom... There won't be any pleading your case. The day of judgment has come. And if you're not sure, I strongly encourage you to be sure. Come up to me. I'll be at the back. Come up to me and we can pray. If you're in need of prayer today, come up after the service. Someone will be up here to pray with you. Just for anything. I just need to get my heart right before the Lord. We need to be ready. We need to ready ourselves, church, for that day is coming. And it's going to be an awesome day, not only for the church, not only for believers, but for the unbeliever. But this is what we know about our Lord. He's not slack concerning His promise. He's made a lot of promises, and He will fulfill them. As some count slackness, some do. But He's long-suffering. This is what I love about the nature of our God. He's long-suffering towards us. And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. You have loved ones that don't know Christ? You can be assured of this. He loves them more than you love them. He gave his life for them. He wants them to come to repentance and to be saved. And so your job is to pray. Your job is to look for opportunity to open your mouth and to speak on behalf of the Lord. But know this, that He's not willing that any would perish. That's the heart of our God. And the only people who will not stand at this judgment seat are going to be those who know Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 13 says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you done that? Have you called upon the name of the Lord to save you from your sin, to put your faith in the cross of Jesus Christ? You'll be saved. Saved from sin, saved from death. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have given us All the promises. You've given us all the confidence that we can stand upon these promises in your word. That we can have this confidence in our hearts of where we're going when we die. It's not a guessing game. It's not something where I hope that I'm going to be in eternity with you. But Lord, that we can know that we know that we know. That your spirit agrees with our spirit. That we are a child of God. A miracle of God. And Lord, I just pray that you'd pour out your spirit this morning upon your church. Stir our hearts. Those that are listening in online, Lord, stir their hearts. Lord, do a work in our church. Draw people to this place that they might hear the word of God taught. That they might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That they might grow and be discipled. Lord, would you do a work here in our midst. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.